1: Hello and welcome again to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions, exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, pest control, garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables and container ideas. Plus, expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors, based here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this June edition, we hear about the latest exciting research projects the RHS science teams are conducting, the next part in our feature series on gardening essentials, techniques every gardener should master and equipment we should all own, star performing plants for your garden in June and, as always, we bring you the latest news on RHS garden events across the UK. But first, let's join our RHS experts to hear what jobs they're tackling in the gardens at the moment.
2: My name's Matthew Pottage and I'm Deputy Curator here at RHS Garden Weasley. So looking at late June tasks to do now, one thing that we've been very busy with is the first kickoff of deadheading in our rose garden, and that's general rose garden maintenance. So that's when that first flush of flowers is starting to go over, getting in there, cutting those back to a leaf node, to a joint and also just generally looking at your rose plants and looking for suckers, looking for anything out of the ordinary i.e. first outbreaks of any aphids or any disease there and really if you can get on top of these problems now rather than leaving anything to escalate in later summer you've got much better chance of getting a good display from your roses. So we have been blessed with quite dry weather and a lot of fungal diseases such as black spot are at a quite low level. But do look out for that, any outbreaks on some of the older leaves and do keep your rose plants as clean as possible. And also on the management point of view of weed population, so many of us have perennial weeds and we're no different at Wisley and now is the time of year to be really paying attention to bindweed the bindweed is up it's showing its face but it's not massive and it's not over the tops of all the plants as yet so if you can get in there whatever is best for you whether or not you can get in to fork it out or whether or not you're going to spray it or paint it with a weed killer depending on what it's growing on really try and get on top of that now if you wait till say late july when that's all over the plants getting in there pulling it off other things is going to be a nightmare and you're going to cause more damage than you're actually going to make good so if you know you've got that now is the time to be addressing it
3: hello it's uh, Andy Salisbury here uh, principal entomologist for the RHS I'm uh, here at Wisley and um This year, we've had a lot of reports of something called the box tree moth. Uh, This is a moth that, as a a caterpillar, feeds on box buxus. It covers itself in a large amount of webbing and can completely strip the plants. The caterpillars themselves reach about two and a half centimetres long, and uh, they're yellow and black. But what's often most obvious is is the uh, large amounts of webbing that is produced. We've had a large number of reports of this moth from um, areas of London this year. Uh, It is a non-native, it's been in gardens since about 2011, and it can have uh, two generations a year. Um, the difficulty with this moth is actually controlling it and um, you can either try and handpick the caterpillars or you can try spraying with an insecticide but it's actually getting the pesticide through the dense patches of webbing that they produce. The caterpillars are normally most obvious in spring and early summer but there can also be a second generation in midsummer and it overwinters as eggs on the plant. So the next generation of caterpillars are the ones to look out for now.
4: My name is Markus Ratscheid and I'm fortunate to be one of the four garden managers down here at Wisley in Surrey of the RHS flagship garden. This year we are quite challenging. We have two things that we would like to try out. One is we are growing Japanese wasabi. And those of you who are fancy of the uh, Japanese sushi, now about the green paste that the Japanese are using in their restaurants. In fact, it's been made of a crushed and processed crop that grows in Japanese waterways. It's a relative plant relative to our cabbages, and it's called wasabi. Wasabia japonica is the botanical name of the root related in a way in a sense to the horse horse radish and we are growing a couple of them now in our vegetable garden and in a completely unusual unorthodox style we try to grow them as other um, radishes so uh, we want to give them three years for them to get harvested and we are now in the second year and we are quite excited to see how our little japanese wasabis are doing in the veg garden also, if you come up to our fruit garden, next to the vegetable garden, you will see a new selection of so-called family trees. These are trees on very slow-growing rootstocks, and we have propagated them using different cultivars, so you get many different cultivars on one individual tree. The trees itself are not very tall, ideal for your balcony even, growing in a container, or in your small patio vegetable-stroke fruit garden. And uh, we got cultivars with up to five different versions of apple growing on these so-called family trees. So that's something new, something for you to come to Whistley to enjoy and to get some inspiration for your own home garden.
1: You can find more information about all aspects of gardening techniques and plants on the advice pages of the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. (laughs) Matt Pottage is with me again today and we're continuing our series of Gardening Essentials and today we're going to have a chat about irrigation, about watering, uh, what we're we going to do. It's summertime and things um, they tend do. to dry out it's rather quickly. It doesn't, it doesn't take long It's very timely this
2: time all. of year to get watering right and see plants have what they need. And again on the market there's a whole range of things to choose from and if you're not quite sure where to start there's a a hose pipe attachment to make every type of spray, droplet size, pattern and then you've got all the sprinklers and then drip irrigation systems, leaky pipes. So what do you favour?
1: Well, uh, I find it depends what the job is that you've got in hand. In in terms of um, hose attachments, I use a a rose uh, for most of my watering, uh, especially in the greenhouse. The spray hoses are too vigorous. It's very hard to control the the flow rate, and you end up blasting things out of of the pot, and the compost sprays everywhere, so, so that's no good at all. I've got an automatic irrigation system, which I use for new plantings. I do like to plant plants that, that are adapted to the conditions, that I have. Well, I have dry sandy soil, very much like we have at Wisley. Um, but I've got some quite large new flower beds that we've established. And we use a soaker hose, uh, which is threaded, threaded round. Yeah, yeah. And then it's covered in mulch. And that means it can be on a timer. And it means that the water is going straight to the roots and then the mulch is preventing evaporation and that is the best way that i found to keep things ticking over in establishment phases
2: yeah you hit the nail on the head i think Then and for me it's all about getting the water to the roots not spraying it around in the air you don't need to wet all the leaves and spray half of next door's fence you know it's about getting water where the plants need it and then very much the same kind of Ethos with watering pot plants or patio pots or anything is direct that water straight to the base of the plant, to the root bowl, slowly fill up the pot to the top, and then wait till the water comes out the bottom. It's no good just giving it a little dribble on the top when the rest of the root bowl may be dry. So you need to make sure that water goes all the way through. It's
1: true of things like uh, all your container plants in greenhouses or even outside, it doesn't matter where they are. I suppose I'm thinking about my tomatoes. You have to water tomatoes so evenly and consistently. Otherwise, you get the old uh, blossom end rot. Therefore, when you see the water at the bottom of the pot, you know the job's done.
2: Yeah, you do. And I'm going to save everyone a bit of money here because I'm actually not a massive fan of all these... Attachments to the end of a hose pipe and if I'm watering for a friend or going around someone's house to look after their plants the first thing I do is take all this jazzy rubbish off the end of the hose pipe and I just love an open-ended hose hold a section of it in front of you you can kink it with one hand to control the flow hold it with your other hand and then you can slowly put in whatever you need if you do need to say spray over orchid roots or air plants or something then you can put your finger over the end of the hose and make whatever kind of spray you want have the water pressure whatever you need but very very simply and very very easily you can do so much with a plain open-ended hose it's how i was taught to water by the glasshouse team years ago at wisley and they still water very effectively like that today
1: Uh, i think the what you've just uh, hinted at there is again getting water to the roots it's not going on the foliage and therefore you're minimizing the amount of disease that can be uh, that can develop uh, fungal diseases develop when you you get moisture on the surfaces of the leaves
2: that's right and if you're watering a large area of a garden and you do need a sprinkler and you think okay it's a good droplet size this isn't just going to humidify the area. you know, this is actually going to reach the plants. Put it on early in the morning or in the evening, just avoid midday, windy conditions, full sun, because all the water you're putting down there is going to be evaporating so quick. So you're not just wasting your money in the water, but the plants aren't actually getting what they need.
1: Is there a a better time to water, first thing in the morning or in the evening?
2: I'm not sure there is, if I'm honest. I know some schools of thought will say the morning is best for sure. I'd probably prefer the evening because it's going to sit there longer before the sun's back on it again.
1: There is that. I could could agree with that. But on the other hand, I often think that if I do it in the evening, which is usually the only time that I've got available to do my watering, that it's all nice and damp and the slugs and snails snails are going to come out.
2: (laughs) You hear the army of them coming along with their nose and fork when you put on your sprinkler. (laughs)
1: absolutely so you know it's all swings and roundabouts isn't it really um can we just have a quick word about watering lawns yes and whether we should do it shouldn't do it if you really have to do it for example when you're establishing a new lawn how long do you leave i suppose it depends how strong the sprinkler is but have you got any guidelines for watering lawns or not
2: it's the same kind of guidance as you know watering a pot plant you need to do a good solid watering that's going to saturate the profile so it's not little and often uh you know in the in the heat of summer you shouldn't really be watering in a new lawn but if you are you know to see that the sprinkler's on there for maybe one to two hours but quite a slow delicate speed not to wash away the soil but you need to properly soak that soil profile if you're just watering the top if you're dusting it over with a hose pipe attachment you know You're just keeping the roots at the surface, because that's where the moisture is available, that's where the roots are going to develop. The idea is you want to get those roots going as deep as possible. And I would say once it's established, if it's browning off in a dry summer, a lot of people start to worry. It's amazingly, you know, hardy, tolerant, and will grow back from almost, you know, a shriveled completely dried up look grass is it it is it is grass is so deep-rooted uh will have rhizomes and it will regenerate from the driest of conditions
1: thanks matt Although many people know the Royal Horticultural Society primarily for its gardens, shows and advice, we also have a very active research wing. The RHS is leading the way in science and research into issues such as wildlife, the use of peat and water, and controlling the spread of pests and disease. Chris Young, editor of the RHS's members' magazine, The Garden, spoke to RHS scientist Tiana Blanusha to hear about some of the latest projects her department is undertaking.
5: I'm Chris Young, the editor of The Garden, the RHS magazine, and I'm joined by Tiana Blenusa, one of our plant scientists. Uh, Tiana, welcome along. You work out of uh, Reading University, don't you? Uh,
6: Yes, well, thank you, Chris. Um, Well, I'm um, an RHS scientist, um, part of an RHS science team at Weasley, but uh, my position is based at the University of Reading, and I'm really exploiting the benefits that uh, collaboration with an academic institution can bring to the rhs
5: so uh, as somebody who works on the magazine i know roughly what we do in our science world but uh, in your area particularly how can you how do you explain the work that you look at
6: well, in scientific terms, my research area is called um, ecosystem services research, and I know that's a, <laughs> that's a mouthful. Um, in practice, really, it means that as a biologist, as a plant scientist, I'm interested in the environmental benefits that plants in our gardens particularly can provide. Even more specifically, the research of myself and my um, PhD students Um is on understanding how plants cool their own surfaces but also surfaces around them, how plants insulate the buildings. So, I have a, one of the projects that I'm supervising is looking at the green roof plants, another one is looking at uh, green wall plants and, and green wall options, and that's um, supported also by an architectural practice that um, is interested in implementing. Um, greening and so on
5: so in so in basic terms your interest is to say okay well if I've got a tree here or I've got some ivy growing on a wall or I've got some cedar matting some succulents on a roof I can actually cool or heat the building or I can insulate it is that generally the the area yes yes and, and this seems to be much more popular both professionally with architects and builders but is it popular do you think in a domestic private garden
6: um, green roofs, I don't, I think there are, you know, there is a the road to be traveled yet for them to be incorporated on a larger scale in a domestic setting. However, I think uh, green walls are, are already quite, you know, a feature in, in most, you know, British gardens. And there is a lot, I think, room for growth because that's a, a relatively cheap and simple installation that most of us can do in our gardens and the individual level. And hence, you know, that's really fueled our interest in, in green wall research to try and provide advice for the members which species is the best for a particular location, for a north wall as opposed to a south wall, would you like a deciduous or an evergreen and then how does it impact the
5: So so the research that you've been looking at or undertaking or working with other people is now giving us sort of a recipe card for saying well actually if you'd have a south-facing wall but you it gets very hot but you want to get it cooled in the summer you can start to recommend plants for that
6: yes absolutely we know that generally any plant as opposed to leaving the bare wall bare would provide benefit to a wall however what we also know as biologists is that plants differ in the extent of cooling they provide and some plants are more efficient than others so we are although we are not uh, you know a species testing plant testing service we can't Test any all the plants, all the plants. Plant. No. but we can group the plants in broader groups and sort of recommend to our members groups that are more efficient than others at cooling or you know any other service that's of interest to them.
5: And and is the feeling coming from the advisory team or from our membership services and all of that? Is, is it that people are starting to want to add, to add these climate change issues or ecological issues or environmental issues? Is that do you feel that's what gardeners are talking about?
6: Uh, I would feel yes obviously I might be a little bit biased because you know it's my area of interest so I can hear it you know it's like the case of when you have you know a type of car you tend to see that type of car all around you know so it's you know I'm interested in hedges so I, I'm seeing all sorts of hedges <laughs> all around the place I was actually in uh, Latworth a couple of weeks ago for work and you know Latworth's full of full, full of, of hedges, hedges. Yeah, yeah. so that was you know music to my ears and feast for eyes uh, but so you know the, obviously taking that into account and i am obviously slightly biased as a scientist uh, you know in in that sense because that's my interest i I do think that there is more our members are definitely showing a lot more interest and um you know are wanting to do things in their garden and i strongly believe that with so many uh, you know people practicing horticulture and having domestic gardens in britain you know a little change that each of us does in form of just you know, planting a climber up a wall or not cutting your tree in your back garden actually collectively will really, you know, make an impact.
5: So the other project that I do know that um, you, you're undertaking currently, the research, is looking at ivy. Mm. And most people know ivy and a lot of people dread ivy, especially when it's attached to your wall or trying to get into your guttering or your roof. Mm. Um can you just explain briefly about some of the areas that you're looking at linked to Ivy? Because I think this will resonate with so many people. Uh,
6: yes, I mean, it's a, a project that RHS is supporting. It's it's um, a PhD um, studentship, a, engineering doctorate studentship, actually, at the University of Reading, which RHS is supporting together with Sutton Griffin Architects. And I'm one of the supervisors on that project. Um, it's coming to the end of the the third year out of four years and I think we are in a position to start disseminating some information later this year. It's about understanding how we can control ivy because ivy has a lot of benefits but as you rightly said people are worried about ivy clinging onto surfaces
5: pulling the mortar out of bricks or that it goes into places exactly. you don't want so it so to do.
6: so part of that project is looking at what materials we can use on buildings where ivy would either not cling to them or can be removed quite easily so we hope that within the next nine months to a year at the latest we should be in a position to actually disseminate through your channels and you're, and you're not going
5: to tell me anything yet are you? No I'm sorry
6: I'm not but we, we'd be hoping that we could publish something in the garden next year You just want
5: to come back onto another podcast and tell us about <laughs> it don't you? Yes But we will be in a situation where we can recommend either a material or you add something to your building or the architect's Absolutely I mean that I says could You can have ivy up to a certain level but if you don't want it growing over here then we can do this to the building and it stops
6: it Yes yes No we are really certain it's it's just that we are really waiting just for publication of data before we, want we go with it publicly, but really watch this space very soon.
5: Before it gets filled with ivy. <laughs> so, Tiana, we've heard about your... Specific area of work and your environmental benefits of plants and things. What else is going on across the RHS science work?
6: Well, a host of projects in in several areas, um, botany, pests and diseases, um, media, growing media, particularly that, growing
5: media being like compost and things.
6: Yes, compost. You know, with the looming change in whether peat will be or uh, available for gardeners to use, uh, a group of colleagues is intensively looking into what alternatives will be available for the garden. Um, Also, Plants for Bugs project, which is looking at how garden plants um, help to promote uh, biodiversity. Um, As well as, as I said, pest and disease work, which new diseases are coming into the country, what pests are emerging, how do they affect the the garden plants, what can we do about them. So hopefully a whole host of of questions which are useful to our members.
5: Brilliant. A huge amount of work and we look forward to welcoming you back onto the podcast. Thank Thank you very much.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Chris Young and Tiana Blanusha. You can find more details about these projects and the other work of the RHS's science department on our website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash science. So now summer is truly upon us. Here are some of the many RHS gardening events, activities and attractions to enjoy in the next few weeks. Visit the world's largest annual flower show, RHS Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, between June the 30th and July 5th at Hampton Court Palace. Try attending a petal-to-pot event at one of the RHS's gardens between the 27th and the 28th of June. It's a celebration of all things tea-making. Visitors can enjoy Betty's Cafe Tea Rooms at Harlow Carr, a garden party at Hyde Hall, a performance of Bake It Big with Glenn Cosby at Rosemore, and a Gong Fu Tea Ceremony at Wisley. As always, full details of all these events and more are on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens forward slash what's on. That's almost all for this edition. Before we finish, there's just time to hear some suggestions for star-performing plants for your garden in June. Here's Phil Clayton from the RHS members' magazine The Garden with his suggestions for plants of the month.
7: The first plant I'm going to choose is a rose. Um, June, of course, is a great month for roses. It's when most of them come into flower. But one of my very favourite roses is uh, Rosa odorata mutabilis, which is quite unusual rose um, in as much as the flowers, rather than being particularly big and showy, in this case are quite quite small and slender. It's a single-flowered cultivar um but it produces masses and masses and masses of flowers um and they open a sort of lovely blush apricot color and as they as the flowers age they change to pink so this means that each individual bush will have a mixture of pink and apricot colored flowers on so it's really quite striking the other thing about it is that it flowers for ages um it may even start before june if you're lucky Um, and it will certainly go on until the first frost and if you get a mild winter you often get the old flower in the middle of the winter it's quite slender growing so the stems are not particularly thorny they're flushed with purple even quite attractive on the rare occasion when it doesn't have flowers open. You can even train it on a wall. I've seen very nice examples, as one at Sissinghurst, for instance, of it growing against a wall. It's a first-rate um, garden plant, and I couldn't recommend it more. And it does have the award of garden merit given to it by the RHS. The second plant I'd like to choose is a Sistus, or a Sunrose, Sistus hybridus. This used to be called Sistus corbariensis, and is probably still sold as such um in some places it's only recently changed its name it's a particularly neat sister this is what i like about it is some sisters become quite sprawly with age but this doesn't it's quite um quite compact um evergreen dark dark green leaves um and then in june just masses and masses of single white flowers they're not huge flowers but they're there's there's dozens of them and they've got a yellow eye so they're quite striking um, almost like little little poached eggs on the plant <laughs> it's a good plant for full sun it, it is fine in very poor soil it needs good drainage don't put it anywhere um, where it's going to get uh, waterlogged it will grow quickly It's also very easy to propagate, which is useful because it's not the most long-lived of plants. Probably after about five years, you might start to think it uh, could do with replacing. And if that's the case, just take semi-ripe cuttings of it uh, in the summer and it strikes very easily from those. Excellent plant for sun and a dry place.
1: Phil Clayton. So, that's all for this RHS Gardening podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when RHS experts will be tackling more of your gardening questions. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and all here at RHS Garden Wisley, goodbye